Chapter Nine, Book One of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Chapter Nine, An English Adventurer. Mrs. Peachum. Sure, the captain's the finest gentleman on the road. Beggar's Opera. Jack Palmer was a good-humoured, good-looking man, with immense bushy red whiskers, a freckled, florid complexion, and sandy hair, rather inclined to scantiness towards the scalp of the head, which garnished the nape of his neck with a ruff of crisp little curls, like the ring on a monk's shaven crown. Notwithstanding his tendency to baldness, Jack could not be more than thirty, though his looks were some five years in advance. His face was one of those inexplicable countenances which appear to be proper to a peculiar class of men, a regular Newmarket physiognomy, compounded chiefly of cunning and insurance, not low cunning, nor vulgar assurance, but crafty, sporting subtlety, careless as to results, indifferent to obstacles, ever on the alert for the main chance, game and turf all over, eager, yet easy, keen, yet quiet. He was somewhat showily dressed, in such wise that he looked half like a fine gentleman of that day, half like a jockey of our own. His nether man appeared in well-fitting, well-worn buckskins and boots with tops, not unconscious of the saddle, while the airy extravagance of his broad-skirted, sky-blue riding-coat, the richness of his vest, the pockets of which were beautifully exuberant according to the mode of 1737, the smart luxuriance of his cravat, and a certain curious taste in the size and style of his buttons, proclaimed that, in his own esteem at least, his person did not appear altogether unworthy of decoration, nor, in justice to Jack, can we allow that he was in error. He was a model of a man for five feet ten, square, compact, capitally built in every particular, excepting that his legs were slightly imbowed, which defect probably arose from his being almost constantly on horseback, a sort of exercise in which Jack greatly delighted, and was accounted a superb rider. It was, indeed, his daring horsemanship upon one particular occasion when he had outstripped a whole field, that had procured him the honour of an invitation to Rookwood. Who he was, or whence he came, was a question not easily answered. Jack himself, evading all solution to the inquiry. Sir Piers never troubled his head about the matter. He was a deuce good fellow, rode well, and stood on no sort of ceremony. That was good enough for him. Nobody else knew anything about him, save that he was a capital judge of horse-flesh, kept a famous black mare, and attended every hunt in the West Riding, that he could sing a good song, was a choice companion, and could drink three bottles without feeling the worse for them. Sensible of the indecorum that might attach to his appearance, Dr. Small had hastily laid down his pipe and arranged his wig, but when he saw who was the intruder, with a grunt of defiance he resumed his occupation, without returning the bow of the latter, or bestowing further notice upon him. 
Nothing discomposed at the churchman's displeasure, Jack greeted Titus accordingly, and carelessly saluting Mr. Coates, threw himself into a chair. He next filled a tumbler of claret, and drained it at a draught. "'How far have you ridden, Jack?' asked Titus, noticing the dusty state of Palmer's azure attire. "'Some dozen miles,' replied Palmer, "'and that, on such a sultry afternoon as the present, "'makes one feel thirsty-ish. "'I'm as dry as a sand-bed. "'Famous wine, this, beautiful tipple, "'better than all your red fustian. "'Ah, how poor Sir Piers used to like it. "'Well, that's all over. "'A glass like this might do him good in his present quarters.' I'm afraid I'm intruding, but the fact is, I wanted a little information about the order of the procession, and missing you below, came hither in search of you. You're to be chief mourner, I suppose, Titus? Rehearsing your part, eh? Come, come, Jack, no joking, replied Titus. The subject's too serious. I am to be chief mourner, and I expect you to be a mourner, and everybody else to be mourners. We must all mourn at the proper time. "'There'll be a power of people at the church.' "'There are a power of people here already,' returned Jack, "'if they all attend.' "'And they all will attend. "'Or oh, what is the eating and drinking to go for? "'I shan't leave a soul in the house.' "'Excepting one,' said Jack, archly. "'Lady Rookwood won't attend, I think.' "'Aye, excepting her ladyship and her ladyship's Abigail. "'All the rest go with me.' and form part of the procession. You go, too. Of course. At what time do you start? Twelve precisely. As the clock strikes, we set out, all in a line, and a long line we'll make. I'm waiting for that old coffin-faced rascal Peter Bradley to arrange the order. How long will it all occupy, think you? asked Jack, carelessly. That I can't say, returned Titus. Possibly an hour, more or less. "'But we shall start to the minute. "'This is, if we can all get together, so don't be out of the way. "'And hark ye, Jack, you must contrive to change your toggery. "'That sky-blue coat won't do. "'It's not the thing at all, at all.' "'Never fear that,' replied Palmer. "'But who were those in the carriages?' "'Is it the last carriage you mean? "'Squire Forrester and his sons? "'They're dining with the other gentlefolk in the great room upstairs to be out of the way. "'Oh, we'll have a grand bearing.' "'By St. Patrick, I must be looking after it.' "'Stay a minute,' said Jack. "'Let's have a cool bottle first. "'They're all taking care of themselves below, "'and Peter Bradley has not made his appearance. "'So you need be in no hurry. "'I shall go with you presently. "'Shall I ring for the claret?' "'By all means,' replied Titus. "'Jack accordingly rose, "'and a butler answering the summons, a long-necked bottle was soon placed before them. "'You heard of the affray last night, I presume?' said Jack, renewing the conversation. "'With the poachers? To be sure I did. Wasn't I called in to examine Hugh Badger's wounds the first thing this morning? A deep cut there was, just over the eye, besides other bruises.' "'Is the wound dangerous?' inquired Palmer. "'Not exactly mortal, if you mean that,' replied the Irishman. "'Dangerous, certainly,' <clears throat> exclaimed Jack. "'They'd a pretty harshest bout of it, I understand. "'Anything been heard of the body?' "'What body?' inquired Small, who was half dozing. "'The body of the drowned poacher,' replied Jack. 
They were off to search for it this morning. Found it, not they, exclaimed Titus. Ha, I can't help laughing. For the life and soul of me, a capital trick he played on em. Capital, ha, what do you think the fellow did? Ha, after leading em the devil's dance all around the park, killing a hound as savage as a wolf, and breaking Hugh Badger's head, which is as hard and thick as a butcher's block, what does the fellow do but dive into a pool, with a great rock hanging over it, and make his way to the other side through a subterranean cavern, which nobody knew anything about, till they came to drag it, thinking him snugly drowned all the while. Ha <laughs> ha! Ha ha! chorused Jack. Bravo! He's a lad of the right sort. Ha <laughs> ha! He? Who? inquired the attorney. Why, the poacher, to be sure, replied Jack. Who else were we talking about? Beg pardon, returned Coates. I thought you might have heard some intelligence. We've got an eye upon him. We know who it was. Indeed, said Jack. And who was it? A fellow by the name of Luke Bradley. Zounds! cried Titus. You don't say it was he? Murdering Irish? That baits everything. Why, he was Sir Piers. Natural son, replied the attorney. He has not been heard of for some time. Shockingly incorrigible rascal. Impossible to do anything with him. You don't say so, observed Jack. I've heard Sir Piers speak of the lad, and, by his account, he's as fine a fellow as ever crossed tit's back. Only a little wildish and unreasonable, as the best of us may be. Once breaking, that's all. Your skittish colt makes the best horse, and so would he. To speak the truth, I'm glad he escaped. So am I, rejoined Titus, for, in the first place, I have a foolish partiality for poachers, and I'm sorry when any of them come to hurt, and, in the second, I'd be mighty displeased if any ill had happened to one of Sir Piers flesh and blood, as this young chap appears to be. Appears to be? repeated Palmer. There's no appearing in the case, I take it. This Bradley's an undoubted offshoot of the old squire. His mother was a servant-maid at the hall, I rather think. You, sir, continued he, addressing Coates, perhaps can inform us of the real facts of the case. She was something better than a servant, replied the attorney, with a slight cough and a knowing wink. I remember her quite well, though I was but a boy then. A lovely creature and so taking. I don't wonder that Sir Piers was smitten with her. He was mad after the women in those days, and pretty Sue Bradley above all others. She lived with him quite like his lady. So I've heard, returned Jack. And she remained with him till her death? Let me see. Wasn't there something rather odd in the way in which she died, rather suddenish and unexpected? A noise made about it at the time, eh? Not that I ever heard, replied Coates, shaking his head and appearing to be afflicted with an instantaneous ignorance while Titus affected not to hear the remark, but occupied himself with his wine-glass. Small snored audibly. "'I was too young then to pay any attention to idle rumours,' continued Coates. "'It is a long time ago. May I ask the reason of your inquiry?' "'Nothing further than simple curiosity,' replied Jack, enjoying the consternation of his companions. "'It is, as you say, a long while since, but it's singular how that sort of thing is remembered.' One would think people had something else to do than talk of one's private affairs forever. For my part, I despise such tattle. But there are persons in the neighbourhood who still say it was an awkward business. Amongst others, I've heard that this very Luke Bradley talks in pretty plain terms about it. Does he indeed? said Coates. So much the worse for him. Let me once lay hands upon him, and I'll put a gag in his mouth that shall spoil his talking in the future. 
"'That's precisely the point I desire to arrive at,' replied Jack. "'And I advise you by all means to accomplish that for the sake of the family. "'Nobody likes his friends to be talked about. "'So I'd settle the matter amicably, were I you. "'Just let the fellow go his way. "'He won't return here again in a hurry, I'll be bound. "'As to clapping him in quad, he might prattle. "'Turn stag.' "'Turn stag?' replied Coates. "'What the deuce is that?' "'In my opinion, he has turned stag already. "'At all events, he'll pay dear for his night's sport. "'You may depend on it. "'What signifies it what he says? "'Let me lay hands upon him, that's all.' "'Well, well,' said Jack. "'No offence. "'I only meant to offer a suggestion. "'I thought the family, young Saranoff, I mean, "'mightn't like the story to be revived. "'As to Lady Rookwood, she don't, I suppose, "'care much about idle reports. "'Indeed, if I've been rightly informed, she bears this youngster no particular good will to begin with, and has tried hard to get him out of the country. But, as you say, what does it signify what he says? He can only talk. Sir Piers is dead and gone. Humph! <laughs> muttered Coates, peevishly. But it does seem a little hard that a lad should swing for killing a bit of venison in his own father's park. Which he'd a natural right to do, cried Titus. He had no natural right to bruise, violently assault, and endanger the life of his father's, or anybody else's gamekeeper, retorted Coates. I tell you, sir, he's committed a capital offence, and if he's taken... No chance of that, I hope, interrupted Jack. That's a wish I can't help wishing myself, said Titus. On my conscience, these poachers are fine boys when all's said and done. The finest of all boys, exclaimed Jack, with kindred enthusiasm, are those birds of the night and minions of the moon, whom we call most unjustly poachers. They are, after all, only professional sportsmen making a business of what we make a pleasure, a nightly pursuit of what is to us a daily relaxation. There's the main distinction. As to the rest, it's all in idea. They merely thin an overstocked park, as you would reduce a plethoric patient, doctor, or as you would work a money client if you got him into chancery, Mr. Attorney, and then, how much more scientifically and systematically they set to work than we amateurs do! How noiselessly they bag a hare, smoke a pheasant, or knock a book down with an air-gun! How independent they are of any license, except that of a good eye and a swift pair of legs! How unnecessary it is for them to ask permission, or shoot over Mr. So-and-so's grounds, or my lord that preserves! They are free of every cover, and indifferent to any alteration in the game laws. I have some thoughts— when everything else fails, of taking to poaching myself. In my opinion, a poacher's a highly respectable character. What say you, Mr. Coates? Turning very gravely to that gentleman. Such a question, sir, replied Coates, bridling up, scarcely deserves a serious answer. I make no doubt you will next maintain that a highwayman is a gentleman. Most undoubtedly, replied Palmer, in the same grave tone which might have passed for banter, had Jack ever bantered. I'll maintain and prove it. I don't see how he can be otherwise. It is as necessary for a man to be a gentleman, before he can turn highwayman, as it is for a doctor to have his diploma, or an attorney his certificate. Some of the finest gentlemen of their day, as Captain Lovelace, Hind, Hannam, and Dudley, were eminent on the road, and they set the fashion. Ever since their day a real highwayman would consider himself disgraced, if he did not conduct himself in every way like a gentleman. Of course, there are pretenders in this line, as in everything else, 
but these are only exceptions and prove the rule. What are the distinguishing characteristics of a fine gentleman? Perfect knowledge of the world, perfect independence of character, notoriety, command of cash, and inordinate success with the women. You grant all these premises? First, then, it is part of a highwayman's business to be thoroughly acquainted with the world. He is the easiest and pleasantest fellow going. There is Tom King, for example. He is the handsomest man about town, and the best-bred fellow on the road. Then whose inclinations are so uncontrolled as the highwayman's, so long as the mopuses last? Who produces so great an effect by so few words? Stand and deliver! is sure to attest attention. Everyone is captivated by an address so taking. As to money, he wins a purse of a hundred guineas as easily as you would the same sum from the faro table. And wherein lies the difference? Only in the name of the game. Why so little need of a banker as he? All he has to apprehend is a check. All he has to draw is a trigger. As to the women, they dote upon him. Not even your redcoat is so successful. Look at a highwayman mounted on his flying steed with his pistols in his holsters and his mask upon his face. What can be a more gallant sight? The clatter of his horse's heels is like music to his ear. He is in full quest. He shouts to the fugitive horseman to say, The other flies all the faster. What chase can be half so exciting as that? Suppose he overtakes his prey, which ten to one he will, how readily his summons to deliver is obeyed. How satisfactory is the appropriation of a lusty purse or corpulent pocket-book. Getting the brush is nothing to it. How tranquilly he departs. Takes off his hat to his accommodating acquaintance, wishing him a pleasant journey, and disappears across the heath. England, sir, has reason to be proud of her highwaymen. They are peculiar to her clime, and there are as much before the brigand of Italy the contrabandist of Spain, or the cut-purse of France, as her sailors are before all the rest of the world. The day will never come, I hope, when we shall degenerate into the footpad, and lose our night errantry. Even the French borrow from us. They have only one highwayman of eminence, and he learnt and practised his art in England. "'And who was he, may I ask?' asked Coates. "'Claude Duval,' replied Jack. "'And though a Frenchman,' He was a deuced fine fellow in his day, quite a tip-top macaroni. He could skip and twirl like a figurant, warble like an opera singer, and play the flagellet better than any man of his day. He always carried a lute in his pocket along with his snappers. And then his dress? It was quite beautiful to see how smartly he was rigged out, all velvet and lace. And even with his vizard on his face, the ladies used to cry out to see him. Then he took a purse with the air and grace of a receiver-general. All the women adored him, and that, bless their pretty faces, was the best proof of his gentility. I wish he'd not been a mounseer. The women never mistake. They can always discover the true gentleman, and they were all, of every degree, from the countess to the kitchen-maid, over head and ears in love with him. But he was taken, I suppose. Aye, responded Jack. The women were his undoing as they've been many a brave fellows before, and will be again. Touched by which reflection, Jack became for once in his life sentimental, and sighed, Poor Duval! He was seized at the hole in the wall in Chandos Street, by the bailiff of Westminster, when dead drunk, his liquor having been drugged by his dells. 
and were shortly afterwards hanged at Tyburn. "'It was a thousand pities,' said Mr. Coates, with a sneer, "'that so fine a gentleman should come to so ignominious an end.' "'Quite the contrary,' returned Jack. "'As his biographer Dr. Pope properly remarks, "'Who is there worthy of the name of man "'that would not prefer such a death before a mean, "'solitary, inglorious life? "'By the by, Titus, as we're on the subject, "'if you like, I'll sing you a song about highwaymen.' "'I should like it of all things,' replied Titus, "'who entertained a very favourable opinion of Jack's vocal powers, "'and was by no means an indifferent performer. "'Only let it be in a minor key.' "'Jack required no further encouragement, "'but, disregarding the hints and looks of Coates, "'sang with much unction to the following ballad to a good old tune, "'then very popular, the merit of which nobody can deny.' A CHAPTER OF HIGHWAYMEN Of every rascal, of every kind, the most notorious to my mind, was the cavalier captain, gay Jemmy Hind, which nobody can deny. But the pleasantest coxcomb among them all, for loot, caranto, and madrigal, was the galliard Frenchman, Claude Duval, which nobody can deny. And Toby Gloak never coach would rob, could lighten a pocket or empty a fob, with a neater hand than old mob, old mob, which nobody can deny, nor did housebreaker ever deal harder knocks on the stubborn lid of a good strong box than that prince of good fellows, Tom Cox, Tom Cox, which nobody can deny. A blithe fellow on broad highway did never with oath bid traveller stay than devil may care Will Holloway, which nobody can deny and in roguery naught could exceed the tricks of Gettings and Gray and the five or six who trod in the steps of old Nelly Wicks, which nobody can deny, nor could any so handily break a lock as Shepherd who stood on the Newgate dock and nicknamed the jailers around him his flock, which nobody can deny, nor did highwaymen ever before possess for ease, for security, danger, distress, such a mare as Dick Turpin's Black Bess, Black Bess, which nobody can deny. "'A capital song by the powers!' cried Titus, as Jack's ditty came to a close. "'But your English robbers are nothing at all compared with our Tories and Rapparees. Nothing at all. They were the rail, gentlemen. They were the boys to cut the throat easily.' "'For sure!' exclaimed Jack in disgust. "'The gentlemen I speak of never maltreated anyone except in self-defence.' "'Maybe not,' replied Titus. I'll not dispute the point, but these rapparees were true brothers of the blade, and gentlemen every inch. I'll just sing you a song I made about them myself, but meanwhile, don't let's forget this bottle, talking's dry work. My service to you, doctor, added he, winking at the somnolent small, and tossing off his glass, Titus delivered himself with as much joviality of the following ballad, the words of which he adapted to the tune of the Groves of the Pool. The Rapparees let the Englishman boast of his turpins and shepherds as cocks of the walk. His mulzacks and chaneys and swiftnecks, it's all botheration and talk. Compared with the robbers of Ireland, they don't come within half a mile. They never were yet any rascals like those of my own native isle. First and foremost comes Redmond O'Hanlon, allowed the first thief of the world, that all the broad province of Ulster the rappery banner unfurled. Och, he was an elegant fellow, as ever you saw in your life at fingering the blunderbuss trigger, or handling the throat-cutting knife. 
and then such a daredevil squadron as that which composed Redmond's tale, Meal, Matig, Jack Riley, Shan Burner, Phil Gullag, and Arthur O'Neill. Sure never were any boys like him for rows, agitations, and sprees, nor a rap did they leave in the country, and hence they were called rapperies. Next comes Power, the great Tory of Munster, a gentleman born every inch, and strong Jack Macpherson of Leinster, a horseshoe who broke at a pinch. The last was a fellow so lively, not death e'en his courage could damp. For as he was led to the gallows, he played his own march to the camp. Paddy Fleming, Dick Balf, Ang Mulholney, I think are the next on my list. All adepts in the beautiful science of giving a pocket a twist. Jemmy Canick must follow his leaders, old Purney who put in a hoof. By dancing a hornpipe at Tyburn, and bothering the hangman for snuff. There's Paul Liddy, the curly-pate Tory, whose noddle was stuck on a spike and Bill Delaney, the songster, we shall ne'er meet with his like. Nor his neck by a witch was anointed, and warranted safe by her charm. No hemp that was ever twisted his wonderful throstle could harm. And lastly, there's Gehirnakapul, the handiest rogue of them all, who only need whisper a word, and your horse would trot out of his stall. Your tit is not safe in your stable, though you or your groom should be near and devil a bit in the paddock, if Cahir get hold of his ear. Then successes to the Tories of Ireland, the generous, the gallant, the gay, with them the best rumpads of England are not to be named the same day. And were further proof wanting to show what precedence we take with our prigs, recollect that our robbers are Tories, while those of your country are Whigs. "'Bravissimo!' cried Jack, drumming on the table. "'Well,' said Coates, We've had enough about the Irish highwayman in all conscience, but there's a rascal on our side of the channel, whom you have only incidentally mentioned, and who makes more noise than them all put together. Who's that? asked Jack, with some curiosity. Dick Turpin, replied the attorney. He seems to me quite as worthy of mention as any of the Hines, the Duvals, or the O'Hanlons you have either of you enumerated. I did not think of him replied Palmer, smiling, though, if I had, he scarcely deserves to be ranked with those illustrious heroes. "'Gads bobs!' cried Titus. "'They tell me Turpin keeps the best nag in the United Kingdom, and can ride faster and further in a day than any other man in a week.' "'So I've heard,' said Palmer, with a glance of satisfaction. "'I should like to try a run with him. I'll warrant me I'd be not far behind.' "'I should like to get a peep at him,' quoth Titus. "'So should I,' asked Coates, vastly. "'You may both of you be gratified, gentlemen,' said Palmer. "'Talking of Dick Turpin, they say, is like speaking of the devil. "'He's at your elbow ere the words well out of your mouth. "'He may be within hearing at this moment, "'for anything we know to the contrary.' "'Body of me!' ejaculated Coates. "'You don't say so, Turpin, in Yorkshire?' I thought he confined his exploits to the neighbourhood of the metropolis, and made Epping Forest his headquarters. So he did, replied Jack. But the cave is all up now. The whole of the great north road from Tottenham Cross to York Gates comes within Dick's present range, and St. Nicholas only knows in which part of it he is most likely to be found. He shifts his quarters as often and as readily as a tartar. "'and he who looks for him may chance to catch a tartar. "'Ha!' 
"'It's a disgrace to the country that such a rascal should remain unhanged,' returned Coates peevishly. "'Government ought to look into it. "'Is the whole kingdom to be kept in a state of agitation by a single highwayman? "'Sir Robert Walpole shall take the affair into his own hands.' "'Fudge!' exclaimed Jack, emptying his glass. "'I have already addressed a letter to the editor of the Common Sense on the subject,' said Coates, "'in which I have spoken my mind pretty plainly, and, I repeat, "'it is perfectly disgraceful that such a rascal should be suffered to remain at large.' "'You don't happen to have that letter by you, I suppose?' said Jack. "'Or should I beg the favour to hear it? "'I'm not acquainted with the newspaper to which you allude.' "'I read Fogg's journal.' "'So I thought,' replied Coates, with a sneer. "'That's the reason you are so easily mystified. "'But luckily I have the paper in my pocket, "'and you are quite welcome to my opinions. "'Here it is,' added he, drawing forth a newspaper. "'I shall wave my preliminary remarks "'and come to the point at once.' "'By all means,' said Jack. "'I thank God,' began Coates.' in an authoritative tone, that I was born in a country that hath formerly emulated the Romans in their public spirit, as is evident from their conquests abroad and their struggles for liberty at home. "'What has all this got to do with Turpin?' interposed Jack. "'You will hear,' replied the attorney. "'No interruptions, if you please.' "'But this noble principle,' continued he, with great emphasis, "'though not utterly lost,' I cannot think at present so active as it ought to be in a nation so jealous of her liberty. Good! exclaimed Jack. There is more than common sense in that observation, Mr. Coates. My suspicion, proceeded Coates, is founded on a late instance. I mean the flagrant, undisturbed success of the notorious Turpin, who hath robbed in a manner scarce ever known before for several years, and is grown so insolent and impudent as to threaten particular persons, and become openly dangerous to the lives as well as fortunes of the people of England. "'Better and better!' shouted Jack, laughing immoderately. "'Pray, go on, sir!' "'That a fellow,' continued Coates, "'who is known to be a thief by the whole kingdom, shall for so long a time continue to rob us, and not only rob us but make a jest of us,' Ha, ha, ha! Capital! Excuse me, sir, roared Jack, laughing till the tears ran down his cheeks. Pray, pray, go on. I see nothing to laugh at, replied Coates, somewhat offended. However, I will conclude my letter since I haven't begun it. Not only to rob us, but to make a jest of us, shall defy the laws, and laugh at justice, argues a want of public spirit, which should make every particular member of the community sensible of the public calamity and ambitious of the honour of extirpating such a notorious highwayman from society, since he owes his long successes to no other cause than his immoderate impudence, and the sloth and pusillanimity of those who ought to bring him to justice. I will not deny, continued Coates, that, professing myself, as I do, to be a staunch new Whig, I had not some covert political object in penning this epistle. Nevertheless, "'Setting aside my principles.' "'Right,' observed Jack. "'You Whigs, new or old, always set aside your principles. "'Setting aside any political feeling I may entertain,' continued Coates, "'disregarding the interruption, "'I repeat, I am ambitious of extirpating this modern cacus, 
this autolycus of the eighteenth century. And what course do you mean to pursue? asked Jack. For I suppose you do not expect to catch this autolycus, as you call him, by a line in the newspapers. I'm in the habit of keeping my own counsel, sir, replied Coates, pettishly. And to be plain with you, I hope to finger all the reward myself. Oons, is there a reward offered for Turpin's apprehension? asked Titus. No less than two hundred pounds, answered Coates, and that's no trifle, as you will both admit. Have you not seen the King's proclamation, Mr. Palmer? Not I, replied Jack, with affected indifference. Nor I, added Titus, with some appearance of curiosity. Do you happen to have that by you too? I always carry it about with me, replied Coates, that I may refer to it in case of emergency. My father, Christopher, or Kit Coates, as he was familiarly called, was a celebrated thief-taker. He apprehended Spicket and Child and half a dozen others, and always kept their descriptions in his pocket. I endeavour to tread in my worthy father's footsteps. I hope to signalise myself by capturing a highwayman. By the by, added he, surveying Jack more narrowly, it occurs to me that Turpin must be rather like you, Mr. Palmer. Like me, said Jack, regarding Coates askance. Like me? How am I to understand you, sir, eh? No offence, none whatever, sir. Ah, stay, you won't object to my comparing the description. That can do no harm. Nobody would take you for a highwayman. Nobody whatever. Ha! Singular resemblance. <laughs> These things do happen sometimes. But here is Turpin's description in the Gazette, June 28th, A.D. 1737. It having been represented to the king that Richard Turpin did, on Wednesday, the 4th of May last, rob on his majesty's highway Vavasseur Mowbray, Esquire, Major of the second troop of horse grenadiers. That Major Mowbray, by the way, is the nephew of the late Sir Piers and cousin of the present baronet, and commit other notorious felonies and robberies near London. His Majesty is pleased to promise his most gracious pardon to any of his accomplices, and a reward of two hundred pounds to any person or persons who shall discover him so as he may be apprehended and convicted. Odds bodkins! exclaimed Titus. A noble reward! I should like to lay hands upon Turpin, added he, slapping Palmer's shoulder. I wish he were in your place at this moment, Jack. Thank you, replied Palmer, shifting his chair. Turpin, continued Coates, was born at Thaxted in Essex, is about thirty. You, sir, I believe, are about thirty, added he, addressing Palmer. Thereabouts, said Jack, bluffly. But what has my age to do with that of Turpin? Nothing, nothing at all, answered Coates. Suffer me, however, to proceed. Is by trade a butcher. You, sir, I believe, never had any dealings in that line. I have some notion how to dispose of a troublesome calf, returned Jack. But Turpin, though described as a butcher, is, I understand, a lineal descendant of a great French archbishop of the same name. Who wrote the chronicles of that royal robber Charlemagne? I know him, replied Coates. A terrible liar. The modern Turpin is about five feet nine inches high. 
"'Exactly your height, sir. "'Exactly.' "'I'm five feet ten, answered Jack, standing bolt upright. "'You have an inch, then, in your favour, returned the unperturbed attorney, deliberately, proceeding with his examination. "'He has a brown complexion marked with the smallpox.' "'My complexion is florid, my face without a seam,' quoth Jack. "'Those whiskers would conceal anything,' replied Coates, with a grin. "'Nobody wears whiskers nowadays, except a highwayman.' "'Sir!' said Jack sternly. "'You are personal.' "'I don't mean to be so,' replied Coates. "'But you must allow that the description tallies with your own in a remarkable manner. "'Hear me out, however.' "'His cheekbones are broad.' His face is thinner towards the bottom, his visage short, pretty upright, and broad about the shoulders. Now, I appeal to Mr. Tyrconnell if all this does not sound like a portrait of yourself. "'Don't appeal to me,' said Titus hastily, "'upon such a delicate point. I can't say that I approve of a gentleman being likened to a highwayman. But if ever there was a highwayman I'd wish to resemble, it is either Redmond O'Hanlon or Richard Turpin.' and may the devil burn me if I know which of the two is the greater rascal. "'Well, Mr. Palmer,' said Coates, "'I repeat, I mean no offence. Likenesses are unaccountable. I am said to be like my Lord North. Whether I am or not, the Lord knows. But if ever I meet with Turpin, I shall bear you in mind. Ah, if ever I should have the good luck to stumble upon him, I have a plan for his capture which couldn't fail.' Only let me get a glimpse of him, that's all. You shall see how I dispose of him. Well, sir, we shall see, observed Palmer. And for your own sake, I wish you may never be nearer to him than you are at this moment. With his friends, they say Dick Turpin can be as gentle as a lamb. With his foes, especially with a limb of the law like yourself, he's been found but an ugly customer. I once saw him at Newmarket where he was collared by two constable culls on each side. Shaking one off, and dealing the other a blow in the face with his heavy-handled whip, he stuck spurs into his mare, and though the whole field gave chase, he distanced them all, easily. And how came you not to try your pace with him, if you were there, as you boasted a short time ago? asked Coates. So I did, and stuck closer to him than anyone else. We were neck and neck. I was the only person who could have delivered him to the hands of justice if I'd felt inclined. "'Zounds!' replied Coates. "'If I'd had a similar opportunity, it should be neck or nothing. Either he or I should reach the scragging post first. I'd take him dead or alive.' "'You take Turpin?' cried Jack, with a sneer. "'I'd engage to do it,' replied Coates. "'I'll bet you a hundred guineas I'd take him, if ever I have the same chance.' "'Done!' exclaimed Jack rapping the table at the same time, so that the glasses danced upon it. "'That's right,' cried Titus. "'I'll go you halves.' "'What's the matter? What's the matter?' exclaimed Small, awakened from his doze. "'Only a trifling bet about a highwayman,' replied Titus. "'A highwayman?' echoed Small. "'Eh, what? There are none in the house, I hope.' "'I hope not,' answered Coates. "'But this gentleman has taken up the defence of the notorious Dick Turpin, in no singular manner that—' "'Quod factu fidum est, idam est dictu turpe,' returned Small. "'The less said about that rascal, the better.' "'So I think,' replied Jack. "'The fact is, as you say, sir, were Dick here, he would, I'm sure, 
take the freedom to hide em. Further discourse was cut short by the sudden opening of the door, followed by the abrupt entrance of a tall, slender young man, who hastily advanced towards the table around which the company was seated. His appearance excited the utmost astonishment in the whole group. Curiosity was exhibited in every countenance. The magnum remained poised midway in the hand of Palmer. Dr. Small scorched his thumb in the bowl of his pipe, and Mr. Coates was almost choked by swallowing an inordinate whiff of vapour. "'Young Sir Ranulph!' ejaculated he, as soon as the syncope would permit him. "'Sir Ranulph, here?' echoed Palmer, rising. "'Angels and ministers!' exclaimed Small. "'Odds bodkins!' cried Titus, with a theatrical start. "'This is more than I expected.' "'Gentlemen,' said Ranulph, "'do not let my unexpected arrival here discompose you. "'Dr. Small, you will excuse the manner of my greeting, "'and you, Mr. Coates. "'One of the present party, I believe, "'was my father's medical attendant, Dr. Tyrconnell.' "'I had that honour, replied the Irishman, bowing profoundly. "'I am Dr. Tyrconnell, Sir Ranulph, at your service. "'When, and at what hour, did my father breathe his last, sir?' inquired Ranulph. "'Poor Sir Piers,' answered Titus, again bowing, "'departed this life on Thursday last.' "'The hour, the precise minute?' asked Ranulph eagerly. "'Troth, Sir Ranulph, as nearly as I can recollect,' It might be a few minutes before midnight. The very hour, exclaimed Ranulph, striding towards the window. His steps were arrested as his eye fell upon the attire of his father, which, as we have before noticed, hung at that end of the room. A slight shudder passed over his frame. There was a momentary pause, during which Ranulph continued gazing intently at the apparel. The very dress, too, muttered he. Then, turning to the assembly, who were watching his movements with surprise. Doctor, said he, addressing Small, I have something for your private ear. Gentlemen, will you spare us the room for a few minutes? On my conscience, said Tyr Connell to Jack Palmer, as they quitted the sanctum. A mighty fine boy is this young Sir Ranulph, a chip off the old block. He'll be as good a fellow as his father. No doubt, replied Palmer, shutting the door. But what the devil brought him back, just in the nick of it? End of chapter 9 Book 1